Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 111, that's 111, of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now, so you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you, with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every single Monday. Now, on today's episode, I've got a really deep and fascinating interview with a guitarist, music manager, producer, author, motivational speaker, and founding member of Twisted Sister, Mr. JJ French. It really is a fascinating one. We cross an awful lot of stories off, starting with a lot of weird and wacky happenings with the band in the early days, from guns to blown-up trucks, clubs being destroyed by their fans, and advice from Gene Simmons. We obviously talk about Twisted's uh, early time in England, but we also talk about the dark days for JJ as well. Bankruptcy, working in a friend's pool hall just to make money in the 90s, health issues, tragedy... But there's the bright side too. He's a motivational speaker for a reason, and everything he says comes across really, really well. Now, whether you're a fan of the band or not, this is well worth a listen, let me tell you that. Now, I've got to quickly mention the sad passing of two more beloved rock stars this week. 
Tony Clarkin, the guitarist and main songwriter in British rock group Magnum, sadly passed away just days before the release of the band's new album. I interviewed the group's lead singer, Bob Catley, right back at the very start of the podcast over three years ago. I'm a big fan of the group, and I can tell you that I had a lot of their songs on during the week, especially the 10-minute epic, Don't Wake the Lion. Had that on repeat. I absolutely love it. If you've not heard it before, check it out. Don't Wake the Lion. It's a brilliant song by Magnum. Also, rock drummer James Kotak, he passed away as well. He's worked with, well, the mighty Scorpions and Macaulay Schenker, Kingdom Come and Warrant and so many others as well. He was only 61 years old, which is terribly sad news indeed. My thoughts go out to both their family and friends. Just a couple of quick shout-outs before we start the show as well properly. I usually ask politely if people would mind leaving a five-star review on their podcast app of choice because it really does make a big difference for me. It bumps VRP rocks up the charts, up the rankings, it helps visibility, and I know that Apple Podcasts rely on things like that. So I've got to say a big thank you in particular to someone in Denmark. Thank you from Denmark. Amazing. Uh, the screen name is Haider Hadur, I think it is. If that's wrong and I've pronounced it wrong, then apologies, Haider. But they left a five-star review saying, love this podcast always looking forward to mondays thank you Hyder. very much appreciated and again amazing it's come from denmark so thank you so much for listening and if you do listen from somewhere around the world then please do leave a review because it really looks brilliant when you see all these ones that are dotted around from all over the place um, i know you can do it on apple podcasts i know that spotify allow it as well now you can click the five stars button on the podcast and you can comment on each episode as well so i see them that go up there and that's always really nice to see so if you can just take a few seconds just to leave a five star review or just a few words that would be brilliant it really does help vrp rocks reach to a wider audience because the algorithm sees that people like it and are commenting and getting involved and then they show it to other people that might like it as well and that's the way these sorts of things spread so thank you if you can do that for me that'd be amazing also thank yous to good friends of the show long-time listeners andy old and joe michaud both emailed this week with very kind words about the tribute show we released the uh, stars we lost in 2023 Andy said it was very respectful and quite moving, and Joe said it was a sad but important show. As always, I really do appreciate everyone that reaches out to to me each week, whether it's on social media or leave a review or an email. I try my very best to respond to everybody. It can take a few days, though, so apologies if it takes a little while, but I do try my best to get back to everybody. And a quick word as well about YouTube, the VRP Rocks YouTube channel. I mean, wow, it's hit another milestone. It's past the four million total views mark 4 million views on the channel which is absolutely insane it really took off in the last year or so and it's all down to the amazing community of subscribers on there if you do use YouTube make sure you've subscribed to VRP Rocks because it's just growing at a rapid rate and it's it's fantastic stuff that's going on on there especially the daily poll people love that I post a poll every single day with four options it always sparks great debates sometimes fiery but it's all about keeping classic rock alive so thank you so much for everyone that got involved with YouTube as well. And I've got to say as well, there's some more exciting developments in the pipeline. Now, VRP Rocks, you know it's a podcast because you're listening to it right now. Uh, You know it's a YouTube channel because I've just mentioned it, but it's also going to be something else very, very soon as well. I hope to share it with you by February, something I've been working very hard on in the background. I'm really, really excited about it. And that's still to come. I'll let you know as soon as I can. 
But let's get back to JJ French then. As I said, this interview is another good one. I spoke to JJ a couple of months ago, actually, but I wanted to hold it back so it wasn't released too close to the D. Snyder one. By the way, do check out the D. Snyder one if you're a fan of Twisted Sister. It's also another great interview, as you'd expect. Episode 98 for that one with D. And, well, D says it how it is, doesn't he? You know that. But for JJ, we cover a lot of really interesting topics, some wild stories as well, and I know you're going to enjoy this. So here's my chat with Twisted Sisters... JJ French. Right, well, I'm delighted to welcome JJ French to VRP Rocks. JJ, how are you this morning? Uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning. This is this is either Keith Richards' dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little early, but it's okay because I have to, you know, I do a lot of these podcasts with people from England. No, I enjoy doing them, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Good stuff indeed. Now, I thought we'd start with something a little bit different. Now, there's loads of crazy stuff that happened in the band, and we'll start with four crazy facts uh, from Twisted Sister and see if they're true and, and find out the stories around them. So the first one is, in the early days of the band, there was a fight between members on stage, and one of the band members pulled a gun. Was was that true? No. Didn't happen on stage. Ah. It happened in the, um, uh, in the really early days. Uh, if you played certain clubs, they have provided accommodations for you. And, you know, we were sleeping in a barracks type of a room above the club. This was a, a giant room that was part of the building. And uh, they had like um, like seven or eight beds in them. And, you know, yeah. we're 20 years old. And most of the bands playing in those days are like 20, 21 years old. So the club owners said, you know, you can all stay upstairs for free. And, you know, you figured... In those days, our bands would just drink, get drunk, pass out on their, you know, on their respective beds, get up the next day, you know, and play. And it was in upstate Massachusetts, rural Massachusetts, where there's hunting that goes on. And the um, there was two apartments in, in the upstairs of the club. One apartment was rented to a family, and one was the room that the bands could stay in. Mm-hmm. And the family uh, who lived in the other apartment had hunters in them because they actually hunted. You know, they had legitimate rifles and hunted. So at a previous performance there, I think the um, the guy in the apartment who was living there, the father, said to my singer, oh, if you want to come next time, you come up, bring a rifle, and we'll go hunting. I think it was something like about as, you know, as non-controversial as that conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't remember if my singer brought a rifle with him um, that, that weekend, but it didn't matter because all the rifles that the that the uh, guy had were just were kind of like just leaning up against the, a wall, like you know that was just the way it was, like just the way it was. So what happened was um, the singer and the drummer got into a fight, an argument in the room between the two of them that was instigated by my singer who was drunk and was trying to find my bass player because he was told by a roadie that the bass player put a cigarette out on his chest. Okay. Which was bullshit. Uh, There was a small staircase. The roadie was walking up the stairs. The bass player was walking down the stairs, smoking a cigarette, and an ash came off just as they were crossing each other and landed on his chest. Okay? Except the roadie was on methadrine or some other drug 
that he was hopped up. And, and so he goes running to the singer. The bass player put a cigarette out on my chest. So the singer decides he's going to defend the honor of the roadie and look for the bass player to yell at him. And of course, the bass player was not in the room. The only person in the room was the drummer. Now, these two guys, they were friends before I joined the band. Like, they'd known each other for years, right? So I was the last guy to join. I knew none of these people personally, but these guys had a relationship. So whatever their dynamic of the relationship was is far beyond my comprehension. But they could apparently tell each other to go fuck themselves in a in a um, collegial way, if you know what I'm saying, that maybe yeah, friends yeah. tell each other to, to fuck themselves. Oh, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're just a drunk, you idiot. So I don't know. I walk into the room. When I get to the room, the singer apparently was so pissed off at the drummer for defending the bass player's honor because he knew that the the bass player could not have done anything on purpose. He said, well, fuck you, and he grabbed the rifle, I guess from the hallway, because I walked in and just saw the rifle. I just saw the singer holding a rifle and aiming it at the drummer. I walk in on that scene, okay? I just walk in. like I didn't know about the cigarette. I didn't know about anything. I just walked into this room with this big argument after the night was over, so it was like at 2 o'clock in the morning. The singer's drunk. I mean, everybody in that band drank a lot, so I don't know how much the drummer drank. I, however, did not drink, so I'm totally straight, and I've, all I see is this guy holding a gun. This is the band's been together two years at this point. It's detailed in my book. What flashed through my mind at that moment was, I'm about to watch a murder. And, oh, my God, my life is over. A witness, you know, whatever. The band's over. The band break yeah. up. And, so that's the story. That's the truth of that of that incident. Wow. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff indeed. Um, another fact. Is this true or not? Um, fans demolished four clubs at the request of the band. Uh, well, yeah. Um, this was weird. This is weird. The band played, you know, four or five nights a week for years and years and years. And during the yeah. course of that, experience you see a lot of crazy things and people ask me what nights stand out versus other nights you know okay so the first destruction of the club occurred um in 1977 on the last night um in august playing at a club called hammerheads the club owner informed me that um he had to he had to he was going to close the club down this was the last night of the club he hadn't advertised it and he said that he was having a fight with the landlord and he didn't give a shit what happened to the room. So he said, tell your fans to take the room apart. Right? So we said, hey, tonight's the last night, Hammerheads. Knock yourself out. Go into the bathrooms. Take So they took the urinals off the walls. They ripped the phones off the walls. They ripped the, the alarms off the walls. I mean, they, they literally took the they literally took the bathrooms out of the stalls. Okay. Now we're still playing, by the way. We're just oh, are you? <laughs> they guys just show up with a urinal, toilet. Like holy shit, these people are taking this seriously. You know, we didn't think it was going to be taken that seriously. We thought maybe they would write some graffiti, you know, fuck hammerheads, or or maybe take the phone, the payphone off the wall. I didn't think they were going to take the bathrooms apart. But at five to four, remember we played to four o'clock in the morning. At 4 a.m., someone reached up and pulled the false ceiling down. Oh, jeez. whole air conditioning system cracked. The water pipes cracked. The floor got flooded. 
And we stopped immediately and told our roadies, get our gear out of here right now before we lose it all. The, the landlord came in and saw this. And he said, why don't you leave your equipment here, pick it up tomorrow. And I went, uh-uh, uh-uh. We're never going to get it back. So we, so that was the first club that was destroyed by our fans, okay? Then the soap factory, no, then a club called Emmett's in Jamesburg, New Jersey, decided that they wanted to redo the club. And they, they took out an advertisement with a gravestone that said, Emmett's, Twisted Sister, R.I.P., come and take what you want or something like that. So the fans went in and just basically did demolition work for free. <laughs> Took the room apart. Okay. And the owner of the club uh, was the mayor of the town and his brother was wow. the police chief. So nobody was going to stop them from doing whatever the hell they wanted. <laughs> so they did that. The Soap Factory Disco was a famous room that held about 3,000 people in Fort Lee, New Jersey. They found out about this. They decided to convert from a disco to a rock club. They told our fans, come and take the Josh Travolta wallpaper off the wall. So our fans showed <laughs> up that night and not well. They tried to take the the the, the Josh Travolta wallpaper, but it's connected to drywall. So they ripped the drywalls off the walls. <laughs> they were washing out with... Now, you have to understand, right? We're a rock band. You know, we got into this business to play rock and roll, not to yeah. be part of a construction crew. But just to give you an idea of the atmosphere, you know, this is what happens. So so that was a destruction of that room. And then the 2001 disco where they filmed Saturday Night Fever decided to convert to a rock room and they told our fans, come on in and take what you want. And they just destroyed the room. Like they came in and they just destroyed the room. So yeah, it's true. Oh, that's incredible stuff. Love it. Um, another story then. You had a brand new truck. You'd had it for one day. You're on stage and then someone comes in and says, it's on fire. Uh, yeah, maybe we had it for a week or two, but uh, we're playing at a club called Speaks. Very famous club because of people who watch um, Goodfellas, the movie. Henry Hill, he worked at Speaks. Okay. This was like the epicenter of the entire Long Island mob scene was there uh, pretty much unbeknownst to us we didn't get involved in any of that stuff you you heard rumors among other band members that guys who were involved in the room were part of the Lufthansa heist and part of you know all the criminal activities but so were 90 percent of the bars we played in and our job is just to play take our money go home and not get and hang out and become personal friends with guys who could possibly be killing people you know that's not what I want to know about it wasn't unusual there were many bands, and we would all privately talk. Did you hear this? Did you hear that? Did you hear this? Did you? So anyway, we got the truck, and um, it was a Saturday night in the middle of winter, and I'm doing Sweet Jane. I'm singing Sweet Jane, and someone yelled, your truck is on fire. And uh, the stage back door that led to the, to the loading dock was right there, and they opened the door, and the truck was on fire, like... Full, full fire, like total flames. And I, um, I turned to my roadie and I said, how much gas is in the truck? And he goes, we filled it before we got here. So I don't, so I don't know much about combustibility. Actually, it turns out the, the the more full the gas tank, the less of a chance that there's going to be an explosion because it's the oxygen in the tank that creates the explosion. So actually it was safer from what I heard years, but I didn't know. And I didn't care. I just said, everybody, please leave. 
turn around now and leave because I thought the truck would explode, the wall would blow out and and would just engulf the stage. And we all wanted to get off the stage and get everybody out of the front. The room was a big room, held up 2,000 people. So we got rid of, everyone le left the room. And of course, that was the end of the night. And uh, I, we're all in shock. And I walked to the parking lot. And I'm where I mean, I'm in such a state of shock that I'm still wearing my stage clothes with no coat because I can't believe that our truck has just been set on fire. And uh, I'm standing there looking at our truck burning. And it, the, the heat was so strong that another truck that had broken down the night before from another band that we play with, it melted. Their truck melted from the heat. And they were, it was burning too. It was, it was a real mess. And I'm standing wearing like six inch heels in the parking lot, like in a state of shock. And a, and a, and a fan comes up to me and goes, hey, you guys going to go up on stage and finish the last song? <laughs> I'm like, uh, my truck's on fire. Yeah, but I paid five dollars to hear Sweet Jane. I said, my, my my truck's on fire, bro. The night is over. By a true story. <laughs> my word. Did you ever get to the bottom of, of what happened with that? Who, who said on fire? I did. Yeah. Two years later, a disgruntled former ex-wife of an employee, uh, a disgruntled ex-wife of a club owner who we stopped playing his room, told me, that the club owner sent one of his sons down to destroy our truck as retribution for us not wanting to play his room anymore. So that's that was now, let me just say this. I didn't mention the name of the club or the person because, you know, this is hearsay, okay? But in connecting the dots of her conversation, this location of where our truck was on fire versus the location of the club that we refused to play was many miles apart. So the fact that she came up to me one day and said, by the way, you know when your truck was set on fire two years ago, so-and-so did it because his father told him to do it because you guys wouldn't play the room anymore. And, and she would have had no reason to tell me that if there was some basis of truth, we never pursued it. End of story. Crazy stuff. And one last fact. Um, before all this, uh, you auditioned for Kiss. Is that correct? No. I auditioned for a band called Wicked Lester that was going to transition into KISS, but was not KISS. It simply was a band that had a record deal whose producer's attorney lived in my apartment building, and I was a babysitter for the attorney, and he knew I played guitar because he could hear me play guitar in the building. He said, are you, are you looking for a band? And I went, yes, and he goes, I know a guy who's producing a band who are changing over, and they're looking for new members. So he got me an audition and I auditioned for, so uh, I, I called, he gave me Gene's phone number, I think, and, and I called him and he said, can I see you play? And I said, yeah, I'm playing at a, this weekend, I'm jamming with a band at a church on 6th Avenue and 12th Street. This was in June of 72. And he came down with Paul and um, he watched me play with this band and then I walked off stage and we talked a little bit and he said uh, he says my name is, uh, is is Gene Klein but I'm changing my name to Gene Simmons and I said oh okay um, like the actress Gene Simmons and he goes no like the guitar player for Savoy Brown Kim Simmons and I Kim said Manning. why he says because we're very much into British rock like Slade like he had he started talking about Slade I, I hadn't known about Slade yet I was still in Alden Brothers, Grateful Dead, Hippie, whatever. And then he said, this is Stanley. 
Stanley, he called him, and he goes, but he's changing his name to Paul Stanley. And he said, what's your name? I said, John Segal. And he goes, that's too Jewish. You should change your name. That was like amongst the first things he ever said to me. He said, and you, and he says, you look too Jewish with your glasses on. That that was weird, you know? I hadn't ever thought about me being Jewish or not Jewish or anything else. Like no one ever, ever, especially a Jew calling another Jew too Jewish. Forget about an anti-Semite calling a Jew a Jew. Like no one ever addressed me one way or the other as being anything. So I was like, huh, interesting. Okay, so, but 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 I understood you know, they were going for a British thing and they were changing their image. They were changing their image to this kind of, you know, slayed kind of a thing. And he said to me, here's my tape, it's Wicked Lester, um, and we're going to fire these guys and come to a rehearsal. So I went to a rehearsal with Wicked Lester and everyone had beards and stuff, and except for Paul and Gene. And they said, we're firing those guys and uh, we're going to change it. And I went, okay. And then couple of rehearsals probably along with 20 other guitar players that's why i never made a big deal out of it i never made a big deal out of it ever some guy just said to me really early on with twisted sister do you ever play any other band or what no not really although i did audition you know i thought it was a funny story i wasn't good enough i mean i've admitted a hundred times when they got ace and i went and saw them with ace i went wow now i see why they got ace he was a great player for them at that time he was perfect I hadn't evolved enough yet, you know. I don't know how to say it any more than I've said it a hundred times, which was, it wasn't for me. Okay, great. They went on and became a phenomenon, and you know that was fine too. I don't ever think twice about it, you know. But but I will tell you that when they finally got Ace and Peter, and they invited me down to the loft to hear them as Kiss. They probably had just named the band Kiss because they had a backdrop that was like a sheet with the word Kiss written on. Like it was just the beginnings. Um, it's important to note if you're a guitar player, most bands in America back in the 70s, American rock bands were playing Fender amplifiers or trainer amplifiers. We're not playing Marshalls. That was the British thing. That was Jimi Hendrix and the British bands. But Kiss, when I went to the loft, had Marshalls. So they were obviously focus in on the British kind of thing and where the New York Dolls was a complete opposite and so seeing the Dolls during September 72 and then going to see Kiss in the Loft well Kiss was a superior band, far superior fully realized all the songs they did with Wicked Lester transformed into a Kiss sound and I was like wow those guys you know that's now I get it. You know, now I get it. And then I became a huge Slade fan. You know, my whole head changed. When I joined Twisted, all those guys were like Martha Hoople, David Bowie, Slade. You know, it was all a different mentality. I came from our Allen Brothers Grateful Dead world. So it, it changed my head completely. So Gene and Paul were ahead of the curve that way. And they were visionaries that way. And they created a great band. Fascinating stuff, and that's us put the four facts to rights as well. Thank you so much for that one. Um, and then just to start the band, I mean, obviously you you were there from from early days, but uh, you brought in Eddie and D and AJ. So so how did you bring these guys into the band? What did you do about finding and forming this classic lineup? Well, you know, there's a documentary called "We Are Twisted Fucking Sister," which is on Thunderflix right now, which is an English English based 
heavy metal uh, video channel, and they just presented um, our documentaries on their site. So you go to Thunderflix. If you watch that story, you watch the documentary. It tells everything in detail, how things went from point A to point B to point C to point D. You know everything. And 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 um, anybody who's ever been in a band knows that. A band is like a combination lock. You keep turning the, the tumbler till you find the right combination of people. So the original five guys were okay for a while. And then the tumbler turned. And then we brought other people in. And then the tumbler turned again. And we brought other people in. And the tumbler turned again. And brought other people in. And that's, if you're going to look at anything about what is the most thing, what is the, the greatest accomplishment is that, I stuck with it during all the changes because they were intense and they could have brought the band down a hundred times, you know, like a hundred times. So we made decisions, good or bad. For the most part, they were good because that's why you're interviewing me because <laughs> <laughs> they became world famous. And uh, But it was a lot of hard work. And and Eddie was an, a high school friend of mine, so he was the the third guitar player. I look, I could go into the litany of drugs and alcohol that destroyed each ex-band member. Not a shock. It's rock and roll. Takes its toll. But I was very much anti-drug and alcohol. And when D came in, I was thoroughly blown away that he never drank into drugs. I mean, that's exactly because I knew how hard this is going to be. It's tough. It's hard working five, four, five, six days a week, three, four, five shows a night. Every night, not knowing if you're going to make it, then you got to spend your off days doing rehearsal and then you have to make demo tapes and you're shopping. And it's it's a hell of a story. I mean, it's a hell of a story. And and I think it's a unique story because when people talk about how much a band works, how hard a band works, I don't think a band worked harder than us. I don't think anybody could have withstood 10 years of anonymity before we hit. I can understand a year, two years, three years, four years. These days with TikTok, everybody wants to be famous five minutes into their career. It's just not how it happened for us. And and it's not going to happen like that again. So uh, it's unique. The story is special. The story is unique. I know it's unique. I know it's special because I've never heard a story like that ever. And I've read every damn book you can imagine in the music business. You know, um, it's uh, it was... Um, an extraordinary time and I and, and the people that made it with Eddie and D and Mark and uh, you know AJ came in just before the record deal like like Ringo came in just before the Beatles signed big you know so they kind of struggled and then Ringo comes in and bang right AJ was the last part he was at the right place at the right time he didn't have to go through he was much younger than us he probably couldn't have done it anyway but um he was the sixth drummer in the band so you can imagine how crazy yeah. that was, changing yeah. bummers all the time. But any musician who's listening to this understands it. This is what happens in a band. Yeah. And like you said, there was so many close calls when it came to, to record deals and you, you thought you were getting over the line and then it didn't happen for one reason or another. So many of those stories, like you said, in your, in your documentary, in your book and things like that, they're, it's incredible some of the, the twists and turns it took. Um, you did come to the UK though and uh, the UK took you to heart uh, really quickly, took you uh, straight away and, and one of the big things was the, the tube on Channel 4. You guys got on there and, and Lemmy was involved and things like that and you got a really big following from there. So tell us about that little stage of your career. Well... You know, here's the band playing in New York City, year in, year out, year in, year out, and you're looking for some sort of um, 
a, a cosmic sign that somehow somebody in the world recognized you. And that sign finally came because one of our independent singles was sent to England from the company that manufactured the record in Queens. They were a, um, a distribution company and um, their whole thing was they would get British albums and artists over and then they would send over interesting stuff. This is fans, as fans. So these guys were big fans of Twisted and they figured, you know, we get all these new releases from Tigers of Pantang, I had made, remember everyone, remember this is the early days, right? So yeah. they did all these new releases and from the UK and, and they would send over stuff and they sent over our record and as luck would have it, the record wound up with Malcolm Dome or Dante Benuto from Sounds Magazine. And Sounds was a very influential British rock paper back yes. in, yeah. right? Back in the early 80s. And um, some fan of ours walks up to me and says, you made it to the top of the charts in England. And I said, what are you talking about? And they showed a copy of Sounds Magazine. And in those days, the writers would have their own personal, like, hit chart like not obviously not a radio chart just their personal favorite records right so it was either malcolm or dante i don't remember which one or jeff barton who was the editor of Cry. i don't remember which one but one of them had their personal chart and they had like 20 songs that had motorhead and tigers of pantang and bop 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 and uh, the number one position was under the blade our 45 we're like whoa whoa ha ha uh. <laughs> i was in a state of shock i didn't know what to do i was in a complete we were all like, wow, somebody cares. So at that point, one of the editors sent the single to Secret Records and what was a pump label with the exploited and the company rejects. And um, something, I don't exactly remember exactly the connection, but the owner of Secret knew Gary Bushell, the the British journalist, yeah, yeah. or Sounds, or he worked for Sounds. They sent Gary to the United States to to see the band. So Gary comes to see us in Westchester uh, at a club called Detroit. That was not in Detroit. It was called Detroit, and it was in Westchester, which is north of Manhattan. And he came to the show, and he wrote an amazing art, Sister Sledgehammer, it was called, as a takeoff on Sister Sledge. And that was a huge article. And Martin Hooker from Secret Rare. And I think Martin called Gary and said, how good are they? And he goes, fucking brilliant, man. <laughs> I mean, that's the big word, brilliant. So Martin came over. And as we tell the story in the movie, we were so cynical that Martin was coming over that nobody believed that he was really coming over because we'd been rejected so many times in the most heartbreaking way, which I elaborate in the movie. But... When we were told he was coming, uh, we said he's gonna. There's gonna be a plane crash on the way over, so he's never gonna make it. But if he does make it and he gets to Kennedy Airport, he's gonna die in a car crash on the way up to the venue. But if he gets to the venue, the lighting rig will fall on the band while we're playing, so we'll be killed. <laughs> and then he comes, he sees the band as a sold-out show. He freaks out, comes in the dressing room, tells us he's gonna sign us. We're, we're like, uh, yeah, sure, yeah, we've heard it before, right? So nobody reacted. When you tell a band they're gonna be signed, they usually yeah, react yeah but nobody did it's kind of like yeah okay sure yeah he walks out and i and i when he walked out i think i said 100 bucks says he doesn't make back to the airport alive 500 bucks <laughs> says the plane will blow up on the way back to england yeah. you know this is typical this is exactly how 
our life had been going on. So eventually he goes back to England. Eventually he, eventually we negotiate a deal and we come to England and we play um, Wrexham with Motorhead and we meet Levy and he immediately sees in us the essence of rock and roll. Not that we're dressed like we're dressed. Like he just sees the essence. He became close with us. And when you have that kind of credibility, when Lemmy comes to the marquee the next day to introduce you, what can I say? He was our patron saint. He was just an amazing person. And, you know, and so every time we came over, you know, so we played Wrexham, then we played Reading Festival. Um, that was in August of 82. And then we made, the, we made the record for Secret, and the record came out, and the record label went bankrupt. Typical story of the band. And they canceled the tour with Diamond Head. We were supposed to be playing with a band called Diamond Head. Yeah. And, and we were supposed to be special guests. It was supposed to be a big tour, and this was our real big shot. Record goes, crashes, burns, everything falls apart. We're sitting there going, okay, maybe, maybe it's just not in the cards. Ten years later, maybe it's really... Maybe this is just like God's way of going, dudes, like enough, it's enough, is enough, is enough. Maybe it's not going to happen. And it's the first time in the whole history of the 10 years that I started to think how much bad news could possibly happen to this band. Like how much disappointment could happen. And as it turned out, our manager, Mark Puma, had made an arrangement with Martin Hooker from Secret to get us on the tube, which was a pioneering live show but we had no money because we couldn't work because we told everybody we were going to tour so we had canceled all the dates in america so we had no so we borrowed as we tell in the story twenty two thousand dollars from various people including some club owners you can figure out what that meant but we borrowed money and um we came over and did the tube show and the rest is history you know, we worked all over, and then D took his makeup off on the air. It's odd. You can see it on YouTube. It's a well-known piece of video. And then Lemmy and Robbo came on stage, and we played Solid Rock and Roll, but I like it. And the whole studio went crazy. And the next thing you know, we got eight record offers and, and Sour with Atlanta. That, that's, that's what happened with that. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And in the UK, I mean, you, you, your biggest singles still remain I Am and Me and The Kids Are Back and, and those early stuff that really did catch a blaze over here. And you mentioned quickly there about Atlantic as uh, Doug Morris had, had basically blacklisted you. He said, he told everyone, do not mention the name Twisted Sister to, to me or the, or the record label ever again. And eventually you ended up there thanks to Phil Carson. I mean, did you ever get an apology from, from Doug Morris in the end? Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I did. A year after we were signed and we came back to the United States and we toured on Can't Stop Rock and Roll... Um, they weren't going to release the record because we went over budget by $4,500. Now, let me just, <laughs> in perspective, 
Michael Jackson can go over budget by seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Def Leppard or Fleetwood Mac can go over budget by two million dollars. We went over budget by four thousand five hundred dollars, and they said, "Either pay us back, or we're not releasing your record." Oh wow! That's how much they hated us. They hated the fact that we signed, but they couldn't stop it because Phil Carson was Atlantic's president in the UK, and they told Phil, "You keep them. We don't want anything to do with them." And so we released Can't Stop Rock and Roll, which had a bunch of hit records. And we come back to America and uh, crickets, like nothing. And um, we had to figure out a way to pay them back $4,500 to release the album. Think about that for a second. And uh, then we went out and toured with basically no tour support. We had money saved and we did it in rental cars and trucks. And that went on for a year. Okay. That went on for a year, a solid year. And then Almost to the week that Doug Mars proclaimed that the next person that mentions the name Twisted Sister will be fired, which he said in an A&R meeting in December of 82, almost to the week of that, I was doing some press up at Atlantic. I had never met Doug and uh, <laughs> someone said, you should meet Doug Mars. And I'm like, I said, why? He hates my band and we hate him. And they take me in the office and he looks at me and he basically said, listen, you guys have killed yourself in the last year. Do you know how many records you sold in America? I said, I had no idea. He said, well, you sold 100,000 albums with not with us not putting a penny into it. And he said, furthermore, I received telegrams or telexes. In those days, it was telexes. It wasn't faxes. Faxes didn't exist back in those days. And, it, and he was getting all these telegrams from local Atlantic reps from around the country. Doug twisted, played here, blew the place apart. How come no support? How come no support? How come no support? How come, you know, I generally like, wow, this is an amazing battle. How come you're not supporting it? And he, he went through a whole list of these names of these executives who we knew. And when the chairman of Warner Music in Canada said, they tw said, twisted, played with Dio at the Maple Leaf Garden, the Blue Place Park. What's wrong with you? And he looked to me and he went, um, I was wrong. I apologize. And he said, if you give me the right record next year, I'll make you the biggest band in the world. Now, let me just say this. Um, I was respectful when he said it, but I didn't believe a word of it. But he did say these words. And think about how innocent this was. He said, well, you know this new thing called MTV, right? We go, yeah. He goes, well, you know who owns MTV, right? All right. No. He says, well, it's owned by two, two corporations. And back then, it was owned by two corporations. You'll be surprised. American Express owned 50% of it, and Warner Music owned the other 50% of it, which means they could do whatever they wanted, which means that if Columbia and Universal and EMI wanted to put a video on, they had to go through Warner Music because Warner controlled it all. So he said, give me the right video on the right song, and I'll make you the biggest band in the world. And I, I walked out of the meeting, and I had dinner with my brother that night, and I told him the story, and he said, John, that's the greatest thing. Well, I said, no, it's not. He's full of shit. He's lying like they've always lied to us. But you know what? He did. Hired Tom Worman. We created We're Not Gonna Take It. <laughs> that's why I'm basically on this show. <laughs> I Want to Rock You know, became two of the most famous anthems in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Stay Hungry changed everything and, and MTV as well. So how much, uh, what well, you're saying, Doug Morris giving you the backing for MTV and things like that, but how much effort did you put into the concepts of those? Because they weren't just videos. They weren't just like you guys playing. They were actual story videos as well, which was unusual for the time. It was, it was very yeah. unique. So That's all D. D created. 
you know, D and Marty Callender. D was um, obsessed with Animal House, and we all were. But he's the one that came up with that concept. But we didn't know that you could actually do that. If you look at the first video for You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, it's a cute little video uh, that we filmed in England. It was cute. I mean, want to ask me a crazy question about that, which would be, Jay, did you guys almost die making that video? And the answer was yes, because there's a scene in the video when we're in a van and we're being chased by these noise police. Well, the van we were in um, had a broken fuel line that was dragging on the ground with sparks coming out of it. And if it had ignited, she would have blown up the van. Like we found out later on after we did the video that uh, we could have died in the van. Um, but anyway, um, we Michael Jackson had done, I think Thriller had come out already. So we knew you could do um, a performance piece that extended beyond the three minutes of the song. And Dee wrote the script with Marty. And got Mark Metcalf and, you know, and was, you know, brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I've heard you say before about uh, Stay Hungry and the success of it. It was tinged somewhat with sadness because the day it went platinum, you sadly lost your father. He passed away. Um, a lot of musicians, parents fight against their, their children for choosing music as a, as a career, as a living. Did you have the backing of and the support of your parents at the time? Uh, you know, my, my mom died when I was 22. Around the time that the singer pulled that gun out on the drummer, she mm -hmm. died two weeks after that incident, which which I detail in the book was devastating to me because the band broke up. I'm, my mom died. My girlfriend left me all in the same two weeks. It was crushing. I, teach, I talk about that in my book. Um, I think, you know, I was 32 at the time, 33. And um, I had already decided in my life what I was going to do when I was 15 years old, and I never paid any attention to what my parents told me. I didn't give a shit. And I think that most of us felt the same way. Wouldn't have mattered. I mean, nice that they, you know, nice that they recognized it. And and I was very um, emotional. This is my father and I repaired our relationship. We had a, a terrible relationship, and we repaired it. At, at the time of my, of my mother's death, we repaired the relationship. And then... For the next, you know, nine years, he was always, you know, we'd come to a show every once in a while with his girlfriend and his second wife, and they were always supportive of me, but he got sick during the Stay Hungry tour, and then I kind of knew the album was going to go platinum or double platinum, and I asked the record label to make a platinum record really fast, because I don't know how much longer he's going to live, and they shipped him a platinum record, and I have a photo of him holding the platinum album, which was taken probably two days before he died, so he kind of knew it. I don't know what he thought it meant because no one knows what a platinum record means, but it means something. It means recognition of fame. So I think he, he was recognized and was proud, you know, which is which is cool. That's all you can ask for, really, isn't it? And and other things which you can look on as a downturn, like the the band obviously went through hard terms at the end of the 80s, early 90s. A lot of bands did as well. But uh, I spoke with Dee a few months ago and he said it was almost a blessing in disguise when, when it all kind of went wrong and the bankruptcy came through and he managed to realign everything that was right to him and grounded him and things like that. Um, how did you react during this period? Because it sounds like probably the hardest thing a musician could go through given everything you've fought for. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. I'd already gone through the hardest time in my life was when the band broke up, my mom died, my girlfriend left me. That was the that was the absolute lowest point in my life. When I got through that, which I describe in the book, because the book is a business book, and it's how to survive in business, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration. You know, the, the tools that I taught myself to survive back then came into play. The irony of it is I filed for bankruptcy, walked out of bankruptcy court in 1989, just like almost laughing at the absurdity 
of where this wound up. You know, we went for like this incredible, you know, struggle and then incredible. And then here I am three years later in bankruptcy court. I'm almost laughing at the absurdity. And I knew exactly why this was happening. It wasn't like a surprise. Let me be really clear about this. There's three kinds of people in the world. There's the people who make it happen, the people who watch it happen, and the people who go, what happened? And I was never going to be the one that said what happened. I was either going to make it happen or watch it happen. I knew exactly why it had to go that way. So I was prepared to deal with it. Still and all, I had to go. I lost everything. And the next thing you know, I'm working overnight to the pool hall that my friend owned because I needed to make money. That I worked selling stereos for four years. We married, had a kid. And uh, Kino pretty much thought, well, maybe that's just it. You know, maybe I had my shot. It was great. You know, and I'll just wind up being a stereo salesman for the rest of my life. You know, and and then all of a sudden the band Seven Dust came my way out because I had worked with them for years as other names of other bands. And I produced a demo and then Mark Mendoza and I produced their album. That became a hit. And, and I pulled myself out of magazine and managed them and made a lot of money and bought a house and everything went back up again. Everything kind of like went from here down to here, then back up again. And then my second wife left me and I had a heart, I needed a heart operation because I'd suffered from atrial fibrillation and everything came crashing down again. And uh, I was sitting there marbling at the absurdity of all of it. And then all of a sudden authors started coming in for Twisted because we had played a benefit in 2001, well, it's 9-11. And all of a sudden, all these festivals said, you know what? If Twisted can come back, we want them as headliners. We had never been a headliner in UK, in Europe ever. It was always seventh on the bill, eighth on the bill. Even at our peak of popularity, we were always like, it was always Ozzy or Whitesnake. And we were always like sixth or seventh behind Blue Oyster Cult. At the peak of our success in Europe, we were always sixth or seventh on these bills, okay? All of a sudden, they're saying you can headline over yes, you can headline over Jeff Rotel, you can headline over this, you can headline over that, you can co-headline with this, you can play over Slayer. I mean, whoa, really? So we had a great, you know, we came back 14 years as headliners of the biggest, 125 of the biggest, world's biggest festivals, we were the headliner. And uh, we released a Christmas record that became a hit for a Christmas album. Everything kind of turned back around again. You know, my brother describes my life as this like crazy, up and down, 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 up and there. And, and I said to my brother, look, I'm an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs, that's what we deal with. You know, there's entrepreneurs and there's people like my brother who was a school teacher who wanted a nice even life, 30 years, you know. I said, and there's people like me, we're risk takers. When you're a risk taker, you have giant swings of successes and failures. And how you, how you accept the failures is what makes the difference. The failures are tough but they teach you lessons. I know that's a cliche. I get that it's a cliche, but it's true. You survive the failures and you learn from them and you, you know, proceed with life. So here I am, 71 years old. You know, I prostate cancer survivor. You know, I, I counsel men all the time. It could come back tomorrow. You know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Am I cured? To the extent where I don't have it today, I'm cured, but you know, can I have it tomorrow? I mean, you know, I had two heart procedures and for better or worse, you know, they, they cured the issue with my heart, which was good. That's fine. But every, every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. And you try to make the best of it every day. 
And just listening to you, it's, it's absolutely no surprise that you're a motivational speaker these days. It's, it's, it's phenomenal the way you speak and the fluency and your experiences that have come from that as well. Look, in the book, I, I take the word twisted, T-W-I-S-T-E-D, the letters, and I make them into learning, into a learning curve. T-W-I-S-T-E-D, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. When people say to me, what's the, what's the key to twisted success? I say the problem in my business is that people think it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, fairy dust, you make a deal with the devil, and you know, blah, 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 and they become famous. That's not how we made it. We made it because we adopted business principles, which we didn't know we were adopting at the time. You follow me? We didn't know that this was <laughs> the process that we were following, but we were following basic business principles. We worked our ass off. We were dedicated. We were inspired. We had, we, there, was, there was a lot of wisdom there. There was a lot of inspiration there. And we were disciplined. And, and, and when people said, why are you guys so good live? How could you do it live? Well, when you do it 8,000 times, you learn how to do it. You know, people say to me, oh my God, Twisted, you, they see pictures of me in front of 100,000 people. How do you do that? And I said, it's because we learned how to entertain and then the crowds just get bigger and you kind of adjust your entertainment mentality. You know, I think I said to Lemmy once, because we'd already played in front of five or 10,000 people by the time we had signed our record label, we hadn't played to 30 or 40 or 50. And I think I said to Lemmy, how do you do that? And he explained to me, because uh, Lemmy was, he may have appeared to be like a druggy, crazy, but he was a very smart guy, extremely brilliant man. And he said to me, essentially, if you look at, if you look at a, an arena and you understand the people in the front, they love no matter who it is because they're in the front. Like they're just, they're, they're so freaking happy. And the people in the back, they're watching on screens and getting high and drinking and they don't really give a shit. You're like, they just, hey, I'm there, man, I'm here. It's the people in the section where the soundboard is, that swath right there. He says, you get that and you get it all. So don't look down because this is bullshit and don't just look that way and always engage and pull them in. And, you know, we're smart. We, we entertained for years in the clubs. You know, we started off playing to 10 people and the clubs held 5,000 people. Believe it or not, the bars held up to 5,000. So you wow. learn how to do that. And then you learn the audience, you learn how to entertain. So how many bands can play for 100,000 people in this world? I don't know, maybe 30. Where a promoter trusts a band with 100,000 people, Kiss, obviously, um, uh, Iron Maiden, obviously, ACDC, obviously, Guns N' Roses, obviously, right? There are levels of bands that are trusted by promoters to entertain 100,000 people because if you suck, the whole <laughs> festival comes crashing down, right? It's, it's a downer for everybody if you suck. We are blessed to have the talents to be able to play to 100,000 people without thinking twice about it. I mean, I could be asleep five minutes before the show. The minute the intro tape goes on, I go into automatic pilot because that is our performance field. Like a football player, you know, like that's what you do. That is what you do. All these bands, Kiss, Judas Priest, we're all professionals. That's We do it because we've done it. You know, and, and that's what we dedicated our life to. We took all the risks in the world to get there. You know, when, when, when somebody wins a gold medal in skiing at the Olympics, they didn't win it because they read a book. They won it because at the age of eight, they decided they wanted to become a, a, a great skier. And they're out there every day, eight hours a day. You and I aren't out there. You and I are not out there. They're out there. 
You want to become a first chair violinist at Carnegie Hall? Practice 10 hours a day for 30 years. I'm not doing it, but the person who's doing it, they're going to be the first chair. Well, in the case of rock bands that can do these things, we did it. That's our pride that we learned how to do it. And so I, when I do my motivational speaking to companies, all I try to stress to the companies are that you're as great as the work that you put in it. It's the, it's the payoff of the amount of dedication, excellence, discipline, wisdom, inspiration. This is what, is, this is what defines success. And so I appreciate your comments uh, in that regard, but, but that's really what the book is about. It's, it's, about, it's about teaching what it takes, because you know what? All these rules I described, they're applicable to anything. And we've mentioned your book quite a few times, uh, Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. It came out a couple of years ago. I've heard you describe it as a bizoir because it's kind of your memoir and a business book as well. And there's some great stories in there from Twisted Sister. But as you said, it is all about the business world as well. Yeah, it is. And I you do I do my speaking engagements to financial groups. I thought it was going to be the musicians when I started with the book. Turned out to be no. Turned out to be business groups. People reading this book, CEOs are reading the book going, that's a brilliant business book. And I went, well, that's really, that's really what it is. It breaks down what we did into business terms. And, and uh, hopefully people learn from it. And by the way, I don't want to take anything away from the fact that the music is still the key. You know, if Dean didn't write these songs, all my business practices in the world would have been worse <laughs> shit. So let me be really clear. We didn't just make it because of the business principles. You have to add in the talent. And so the talent and the dedication from D, from Eddie, from Mark, from AJ, you don't discount that. You can never discount it. That's, that's the magic part. But you know what? You can be great and never become successful because you don't apply basic business principles to becoming success. So um, that's the whole point. You know, you, you need that creativity. And, and I say to D all the time, I thank him all the time for writing these songs. And people say, how do you get along with your singing? I say, what, am I, what do you want me to tell you? Like, I hate you for writing these songs. No, if neither, I don't write songs, man. I don't sing. My voice sucks. You know, God created Bob Dylan so I could sing cover songs. You know, like, I mean, you know, my voice is, I'm not this, I tried to sing, it didn't work, you know? I needed to hire a singer, deep. On our new album, which is just coming out now, it's the 40th anniversary of Under the Blade. We have a second LP. It's a double LP. And for the first time ever, we put cover songs on it. We played in the bars. And there's a whole side of nothing but Zeppelin songs. Uh, Do you sing these? Wait till you hear it. We hired him because he could sing Zeppelin. He sounds unfreaking believable. Eddie's guitar playing is unbelievable on this record. I've got to tell you, it's. Incredible to hear what we started like in 1976. This is stuff we recorded in 76 on, on the second LP. So I think people will be amazed when they hear it. It's a great double album and it has a gatefold. Has It's double album in the inside pictures, all the pictures of us recording Under the Blade in 1982 on a farm in, uh, in, in um, Brighton, outside of Brighton. We, we didn't have enough money to do in the studio, so we recorded in a barn. <laughs> and the farmer had hay bales um, around the amplifiers and the drums. Hay bales because he needed the soundproofing. Sound. And um, and uh, when Mendoza's bass record was being recorded, the farmer said the hens like thirty percent more eggs during the. <laughs> so, um. Anyway, great photos of us. You know, 
recording this record for next to no money because we didn't have a budget in secret records or 18,000 pounds or something to make the album. So anyway, there's all these photos of making the record and and um, living down in Brighton in the hotel. You know, we're New York people. The oldest thing in this neighborhood is 100 years old. You know, in England, 100 years old is yesterday, <laughs> you know? So we're living in a hotel that was built in the 13th century. We're recording in a barn that's at the bottom of the Battle of Hastings in the 12th century. You know, I'm recording and I'm looking at this field going, the Battle of Hastings was fought. <laughs> you know, right? You know, England's amazing. England really is amazing. My second wife was British. My daughter's half British. I spent a lot of time over there. A funny story and then and we'll go, but it's a funny story. When my daughter was first born and we were going to visit my wife's grandparents in Basildon. Yeah. Where we come through immigration and Tony Blair had just been elected, you know, the new Britain, the new yeah, print, yeah. everything was optimistic. Right. So yeah, so we're coming, we're we're um we're coming through immigration, whatever, and my wife and my daughter are on the British side and I'm on the American side and, and the, the woman who's the immigration officer is looking at me and she goes, What are you here for? And I said, Oh, there's my wife and daughter and we're gonna um we're coming to visit the grandparents. We're going to go to Basildon and we're going to uh, uh, have Christmas with, with her parents and we're going to watch the Queen on telly. And she looked at me and she went, how dreadful, as she stabbed my passport. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't you just lie to me and tell me have a nice time, you know? <laughs> That's the British humour for you. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, exa exactly. Thank you so much for joining me, JJ. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And uh, uh, definitely check out your podcast as well, the JJ French Connection. It's out there on all the usual podcast places. So have a, give that a listen because you interview some brilliant people and great yeah. conversations. Yeah, JJ French Connection, J-A-Y-J-A-Y-F-R-E-N-C-H. I, I have great musicians, great writers, great authors, great actors, Um surprisingly i've got doctors on because of my prostate cancer so i have specialists in all sorts of stuff um uh producers record producers so if you it's on spotify apple and, uh, and other platforms and this month i have record company president month so if you want to know about the record business i have a record company president every week this past month and they're all listed so you can see them if you want to hear what the, jason flom former head of atlantic i've got um dave rath who's the head of um blue grape who used who signed everybody at roadrunner I've got uh, Cliff Chenfeld, the Razor and Tie, who signed millions of uh, biggest independent label in the United States history. And I have a woman who just decided to start a record label. And that episode is called What the Fuck Were You Thinking? <laughs> like, you know, uh, and it's her perspective. So if you want to get in the business and you want to hear business stuff, you should listen to those as well. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. There you go, some fascinating stories from JJ French there. As always, please do check out that re-released Twisted Record, look for JJ's book, and check out his podcast as well. Please support these guys while we still can. And that's it for me in this week's episode then. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so you get all the episodes, loads more great guests coming, brilliant stories, all that sort of stuff. Episode released every Monday. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the app that you use. It makes a big difference. Check out the VRP Rocks YouTube channel. Give us a like or follow on the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever it's called these days. And uh, thank you to everyone that reaches out every single week. So until next week's show then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.